everyone. You all are experiencing the Winters Group's live taping of the Inclusion Solution Live, our official podcast for all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. Just another medium that we believe we can use to really shift perspectives, um, facilitate change, and ultimately empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. I'm joined today, and I'm certainly proud to be joined today with these wonderful black women on this stage. I'm certainly excited for this conversation, even excited that you all are here and chose to engage in this conversation and journey along with us. Y'all could have been anywhere y'all wanted to be this evening, and y'all decided to be here. This is gonna be a conversation. We have mics. Y'all actually have two floating mics as well. And so our goal today is to not to talk at you, but certainly have dialogue and conversation with you around a topic that we believe is certainly pressing, relevant, and timely, just given we're at one of the largest conferences um, for diversity and inclusion practitioners. Um, the event was marketed and communicated around the topic, or question rather, of what would it mean to decolonize the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry? We would be remiss to host an event that um, focuses on or uses decolonization as a metaphor and not give honor to the indigenous communities um, whose land we stand on and share and gather uh, on today. And so I'm gonna ask us to just take a few seconds to pause as we honor the uh, Sioux, Dakota, and Chippewa tribes whose land we are on today. Thank you for sharing in that moment. We honor their legacies and certainly the losses that many of us benefit from um, today in this work and in this space. Language matters, and we're gonna do formal introductions all. This is me kind of like setting context. Language matters, and so um, as I was like toying with this subject, um, had a few colleagues send me some work um, around uh, and, and some of the discussion around decolonize um, and how it has since been used, commonly used as a metaphor. Um, and so I wanna honor that there are many perspectives that would say we do a disservice when we use terms like decolonize as metaphors because they actually signify very literal um, historical uh, concepts and actions, right? And so when we talk about decolonize, we're actually saying that, hey, we need to be returning land back to communities um, which it has been stolen from. And so I dare not sort of be, you know, perpetuate the sanitizing of language in this conversation. And so I just want to honor that as a real concern um, and a very relevant uh, point of reflection and discussion. When we use that term, we were really essentially asking of ourselves the question, what would it mean to really center humanity, justice, and dismantling systems of oppression in our work? Um, what would it mean to reimagine an industry that, that does just that? And so that's what we're seeking to have conversations around today. We've been having our own internal conversations around what this reimagining might look like and thought this would be an opportune um, medium in place to engage the perspectives of fellow practitioners. Wanna also set context with the quote that I think is just like relevant, um, a quote by James Baldwin that gets at uh, why these kind of conversations are so necessary and even gets at like the sensitivity that may come as we become more critically of ourselves. The quote is, I love America more than any other country in this world. 
And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. I thought that was relevant because I was thinking to myself, and we've even discussed ourselves that, man, more often than not, our work is um, you know, being critical, perhaps, of the systems in which we work, maybe even the peoples that we support and or lead. But not too often are we as critical of ourselves as practitioners and um, putting a scope on how we may be perpetuating some of the same systems and behaviors uh, that we seek to dismantle ourselves. And so I want to enter this conversation in a posture of love and understanding that we love our work so much that we're okay and um, comfortable and willing to challenge how we do the work because that's how we continue to do better. That's context setting. Um, I'm gonna stop there and because I feel like I've been talking a lot. Um, we are going to uh, do some introductions but a little differently because I most of you may already know Rara and Mary Frances. We are going to do some introductions in the form of you know like I am statements and so when you think about you know what you're bringing to this conversation showing up today at the forum if y'all wouldn't mind sharing some of those aspects of your identity that you believe are going to influence how you engage today who wants to go first hi good evening everyone thank you so much for being here i am shavara oran principal strategist with winters group very excited to be here with my colleagues and as Brittany already said two brilliant black women on this stage i am the great great-granddaughter of Samuel Oreski, who set sail on the St. Mary in 1902 from Kiev, Ukraine, and landed in this station in New York, and ultimately worked at a garment factory that made women's blouses. As a foreman, he became involved in a union workers' strike, and ultimately was fired and blacklisted. I am also the great-granddaughter of Morel Bevel, born on a cotton plantation in 1837, into slavery and bondage. And when slavery was abolished, he began work as a sharecropper not too far removed from the work he had just done. I am the daughter of Susan Oren, who at 23 was a lead organizer of the 100,000 person march on the Pentagon in opposition of the Vietnam War in 1967. And I am the daughter of James Bevel, the architect of the Birmingham Children's Crusade in 1963, the Open Housing Act in 1965, and the March to Selma in Montgomery. I am also a survivor of sexual violence, and that experience absolutely, probably more than anything else, shapes and informs how I walk in this work. Thank you, Shavara. Hey, thank you, Shavara. Um, I am, is this on? Thank you, Brittany. <laughs> I am a black woman, cisgender, heterosexual black woman. I am a baby boomer. Uh, I am, I, I'm adopted. I was adopted, so I don't know um, the history of you know my my family. I grew up in um, Niagara Falls, New York. My parents were Canadians. Um, my mother was a proud Canadian. She never wanted to be an American citizen. She died young and um, actually carried a green card for the whole, for her whole, you know, for her whole life. So that informs, obviously, informs how I um, think about the world. My parents only had eighth grade educations. I'm a first generation college graduate, and if those of you who were in the other session. Uh, know that I said I am a proud <laughs> recipient of affirmative action. Uh, I would not be here today without um, without affirmative action. Uh, I am I I um, am wanting to leave um, a legacy. Um, so I'm writing a book called Black Fatigue. And um, in doing some of the research for black, black Fatigue, How Racism Arose the Mind, Body, and Spirit, and doing the research from that, for that, it's just paining me um, how much progress we have not made. And how when you look at the statistics from any point, other, any, any point in time, go back to 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. You know, go back to 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, you know, go at any point in time, Voting Rights Act of 1965, go at any point in time and you look at, you know, look at voter suppression today, you look at all of these things today, 
and the fact that I've been doing this work now for 30, uh, I mean, in, on March 16th, the Winters Group will be in business for 36 years. Um, when I left um, co the corporate world um, 36 years ago, they said, let her go, she'll be back. I was, I was a token, I'll go into that later, but they said, let her go, she'll be back anyway. And I was bound and determined. I worked for the Eastman Kodak Company. They have filed bankruptcy. I've never filed bankruptcy. <laughs> hey, <laughs> so yeah, so that's just a little bit about um, about and I, and and I think I think entrepreneur. I, I'm I'm truly just an entrepreneur, and I I, I truly believe that for us um, to make progress, we have to wield power. We have to find power, and that power we find that power in owning, mm. in owning, owning who we are and what we do. And that's what I've done for 36, tried to do for 36 years. Is it easy? No. Is it complex? Like um, Mark uh, Lamont Hill said, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really complex. Um, so we're going to talk about mm -hmm. all of this, mm -hmm. and the colonization, and yeah, so. I'm appreciative of you both. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I am Brittany. I realize I ain't even do it. Uh, I'm going to model um, the vulnerability and authenticity. I'm hopeful that each of you will also uh, choose to, if you wish, today. Um, I am Brittany, black woman, um, mother to Braxton, a three-year-old black boy. I was sharing with someone today that um, top of mind to me, and I've never used this in an I am, is, is I'm a granddaughter. And so full transparency, y'all, I'm also kind of like feeling very vulnerable and open, kind of just being um, in this space in a public setting, leaving home and being away from my son and family. Um, and I'm someone who's an extrovert, and so this is usually easy. But I've been like really anxious the past few days and just kind of like an up and down of emotions. I share that because that's something that I've been processing um, for myself, why I feel as I do, how it's influencing um, how I show up and even engage with others. And it's also um, uh, sort of uh, revealed a layer for me how just our external world and what we consume in the media and just the realities of our social um, sort of climate influences you know who we are. Um, so yeah, I'm a granddaughter. I'm an advocate. Um, I am uh, someone who experiences access and privilege, and so I'm always trying to figure out how to make the most of that and to ensure that. We are amplifying perspectives and um, experiences that are perhaps not necessarily always centered, which is essentially why I see the urgency or experience a certain degree of urgency in this conversation. We're going to show a video um, that I came across in the Twitter sphere a few weeks back. And it really made me think about this uh, or had me reflect on um, the concept of Sankofa which I think is relevant to this conversation when we think about reimagining a future or our present even. Sankofa is translated to, um, it is not taboo to go back and fetch. And so if you've seen the, the symbol, so it's West African, it's a picture of a bird whose head is sort of cocked backwards and looking at its tail. And it's meant to signify that we have so much to learn, it is not taboo to go back and learn from our past and our history in order for us to reimagine a better present, a better future. This uh, video is historical, and it is a narrative of someone who, I believe perhaps we don't talk about enough in black history or even women's history, it is still March, it's Mar yeah, March. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, a narrative that I think is ever more important, just given us being in a political season as well. As you all may well know, she was very influential in, um, civil rights um, and really advocating centering justice and the humanity of, of black, black people um, in her time. So we're going to play this video. It's heavy. And I'm just going to ask you to track whatever you feel, whatever you experience. And I'm also going to ask for Mary Frances and Shavar for their reactions, as well as get a few reactions from you all afterwards. Mississippi is still a very rough place, you know. Um, people is not just walking up like they used to do in the past, walking out, you know, shooting a man down or getting maybe two or three hundred people carrying you out and lynching you, but it's 
it's in a most subtle way. Uh, you know, they can let you starve to death, not give you jobs. These are some of the things that's happening right now in Mississippi. See, Mississippi is not actually Mississippi's problem. Mississippi is America's problem. Because if America wanted to do something about what has been going on Mississippi, it could have stopped by now. It wouldn't have been in the past few years, 40, uh, between 40 and 50 churches bombed and burned. You see, and this, this, you know, this lead me to say, you know, all of the burning and bombing that was done to us and the houses, nobody never said too much about that, and nothing was done. But let something be burned, you know, by a black man, and then, my God, you know, you see, the flag is, is drenched with our blood because, you see, so many of our ancestors was killed because we have never accepted slavery. We had to live on it, but we've never wanted it. So we know that this flag is drenched with our blood. So what the young people are saying now, give us a chance to be young men respected as a man as we know this country was built on the black backs of black people across this country and if we don't have it you ain't gonna have it either because we gonna tear it up that's what they saying and people ought to understand that I, I don't see why they don't understand that they know what they've done to us all across this country they know what they've done to us. This country is desperately sick, and man is on the critical list. I really don't know where we go from here. Give y'all a few seconds to process, and um, I'm going to start with Mary Frances and Shavard just to share your reaction to what you saw, what you heard, particularly as it relates to our conversation today. So the conversation around decolonizing um, DEI work, what triggers for me um, is this could have been said today. This was, what was this, 1960? Yeah, so this could have been said today. The other thing that triggered for me was the, uh, when she talked about the subtle ways. So when I think about our work and I think about um, what we do in, um, in organizations and um, the thing that we've said at the Winters Group, um, we meet people where they are. And so I'm wondering if in our quest to decolonize, maybe we shouldn't be meeting people where they are. Maybe we need to start pe meeting people where they are not. Right, that's, so it's interesting because, so uh, yesterday, Shavar and I facilitated a session on uh, mapping the intersection between equity and injustice, uh, diversity, inclusion, social justice work, and the colloquialism of meeting people where they are and sort of the paradox of what that means came up. And even in my conversation I just had with, with, with you, Hope, and um, one of the things that I think and I'm hearing from you is that we can't necessarily conflate with, conflate meeting people where they are with um, not moving people outside of a comfort zone, right? Or not moving people into a learning edge where they can grow. Um, well, and I think part of the system and, and part of the, the continuation of um, the, the system of oppression is that we're not, people in DEI work are not allowed, if you, you will, because of the system of white supremacy. So when so the leaders that I've been working with recently and, and the DEI people I've worked with recently, and well, not just recently, for a long time, um, and a matter of fact, I just got a text from somebody who's got to go with in front of his CEOs, you know, um, tomorrow. Can I talk to you for a few minutes? And so he's he has a, he has like 20 minutes on the agenda, and he has spent probably 60 hours preparing for 20 minutes on the agenda. And preparing to be able to talk with the CEO in the direct reports in a way that they can hear it. I see y'all shaking heads and be comfortable with it so that I don't lose my job. Because another client 
the person in the head of diversity did lose their job because they dared to point out the inequities. They dared to challenge, right? Um, so I, I, I think that this idea that we have to start meeting people where they are, I think that if we're gonna disrupt, if we're gonna decolonize, you know, 35 years doing this work, folks, and the same conversations over and over and over and over and over and over again, year after year, decade after decade. And I get that you all who are being paid by these big corporations, these companies, you need your job. You need to be able to, you know, and in order to keep that job, you've got to say and do what the powers that be want to hear. And we can unpack that. I want to stay with feelings around the, the, the video. Sure, no, I, I will. Mary Frances, you just said something that, that reminded me of two things. Um, one, when you were talking about the fact that this could be today, James Baldwin also said that people are trapped in history and mm. history is trapped in them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what came to mind. And then also a book I just finished reading, actually that Brittany recommended, Diversity Inc. by Pamela Newkirk, and she talks about the failure of the billion dollar DEI industry, right? So those are, are two things, so I just wanted to share that. I was triggered watching this video, and I had not seen it before. I had seen many, many times before Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony before the DNC, and I've seen images of her tombstone where she's famously known for saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. What I was thinking about was the haggardness mm. in her face and the sorrow in her eyes and also thinking about how she was a victim and survivor of our eugenics movement. She was forcefully sterilized, mm. um, unknowingly forcefully sterilized. And so all of those things were going through to my mind. And when she talked about the sickness that is, is America, Brittany and I were having a conversation a couple of days ago about an action that my mom, a, a white Jewish woman, took in 1968. And one of the pieces of a declaration that a group of very radical white activists said, they, they talked about um, America. And they were saying that for 300 years, America has demanded that blacks be nonviolent, even if whites are violent. The greatest American who stood for that position was murdered Thursday night. This was a couple of days after King's assassination. And they said, now it is time for white America to repay that historic debt, to be nonviolent, even if blacks are violent. But instead, President Johnson has sent troops and helicopters. They're not yet strafing Washington, but the mass arrests have already begun. If anything is needed to show the bankruptcy of American racism, this is it, that the United States government is carrying on a military occupation of its very own capital. And so when she talked about this idea, Fannie Lou Hamer, people will burn it down. And DC was inflamed. And the rebellions were happening in response to government you know, occupying, occupation um, of the city. But mostly I was thinking about how haggard she looked and this idea around mm -hmm. black fatigue that Mary Frances is, is working on and, and we are in the process of interviewing people for this extraordinary book that she's writing. And one of the people that I spoke with recently was Ambassador Andrew Young and I was asking him about fatigue during the Civil Rights Movement and he said, you know, Shavara, I, I don't even use the word fatigue. We didn't get fatigued, he said, because fatigue happens with discouragement. We didn't get discouraged because we knew who white people were and who they were not. And so our expectations weren't that high. We knew we had to meet them actually where they were. Mm. I want to ask anyone in the audience if they'd be willing to share, certainly if uh, you um, feel safe enough to do so, your reaction to the video, anything that perhaps came up for you, um, how you felt, how it relates. And that's, we, do oh. have, we have mics. We have mics for you. So, 
what it made me realize in the work that we're looking at, and it totally resonates when I see, I notice her haggardness and whatnot, and this is what a lot of the black women were doing, uh, were coming in. A lot of them had uh, just a basic, in this organization, high school, and were taking it in. But they said to me, we were against, we've been against the wall, we just take it, because we're waiting for that 35-year retirement, and now we realize that we're not going to be alive for that retirement. Mm. And where the work with Kaiser comes in is that he's doing research that shows how the toxic organizational culture is a disparity or really affects us, especially as women and, and women of color. And also how when we talk about multicultural and we talk about people of color, and by the way, I'm, I'm, um, I'm black and Latina. Um, we kind of lost sight of the, tr the the experience of the black American, mm. and especially the black woman. So the last thing is that we talk about belonging and we talk about wellness, but we're not looking at it through an intersectional lens. And what we're finding in this organization and the work at Kaiser is that there's a disproportionate amount of women, black women, higher in cancer, and now I did it with this organization, higher in cancer, higher in all kinds of diseases, they're off the chart. So how the hell are you gonna talk about belonging and humanity when you have a group that is such an outlier? Thank that was my question. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. When I um, first saw this video, I thought about how it isn't often that we even hear rhetoric in our work that centers words like even humanity um, or even justice. We've since evolved into an industry that in some ways centers business takes and innovation and bottom line. Um, and so when we talk about reimagining, I think I'm gonna stick with that word for purposes of this conversation, reimagining this work um, uh, I think that's a, that's a start point. How, what are we centering? Are we centering people and their stories? Um, and honoring that this work is deeply rooted in people seeking, not bottom line or capital you know, gains, but justice and just the inherent right to be and live, longevity. Um, uh, Thank you so much for that share. One of the things that it called to for me is in this space, we don't often, hardly ever, actually we don't hardly ever, talk about the very different experiences that white practitioners are having versus practitioners of color. Mm. In the spaces where we are often holding space, so we walk into these spaces as practitioners of the work, armed with degrees and certifications and knowledge, which Einstein said is limited imagination, he said, takes you around the world, mm. right? Um, and as we are practicing, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm <laughs> using it. As we are practicing, we are also experiencing the day-to-day -day lived experiences in the bodies that are primarily the work that we are talking about, right? And over the past few months, I've been having conversations with colleagues who are white, interrogating whether or not they are mindful that they might be complicit in the very systems that we purport to disrupt on a day-to-day -day basis. And that could look like something that's very interpersonal. It might look like something that's much more organizational. So for example, a white-led, white-founded organization that's much, much larger, perhaps, than a black-founded, black-led organization. And when it comes to the work, are we thinking about partnering? Are they stepping aside sometimes and saying, I've got enough? I know that this organization doesn't have any. At conferences like this, are we even questioning who's on the stage? Who gets called year after year after year? Whose voices are not called, who are also still doing the work? And I think that that's the interrogation mm. that's missing, and it is painful, right? 
you talked about rage. Thank you for bringing that into the space. I think as, as black and brown women and as black and brown people, as people of color, we don't have the luxury of being enraged, but I guess it's a James Baldwin kind of day because he said to be in a black in America is to be what? In a constant, in a constant state of rage. rage. <laughs> it ain't is easy what being woke. It ain't easy being <laughs> woke. So I mean, I, I, I think about those types of questions in our space. Yeah, so a um, colleague of ours, um, Dr. Price Cobb, who died a couple of years ago, in 1968, he wrote a book called Black Rage, mm. Why Black People in America Are, are and enraged, right? And so that was 1968. And so I'm still gonna come back to um, one of the chapters in the book, Black Fatigue, is called Then Is Now. Thank you, Shabar, for helping <laughs> me with that, um, that title, because as we were talking about, she said, well, then is now. <laughs> I saw oh, that sounds really good. But, but so, so the, 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 um, the, the fatigue that I continue to see your story, your story just about brought me uh, brought me to tears because what we see, what I hear are I heard this today in a session, session we were both in. A woman said, you know, I've got all. You didn't hear this because that's what I've got all the credentials. I've studied. I've gone to school. I've gotten all the certifications. I've done everything that they've told me to do, right? And yet, and still, I don't get the opportunity. I was with some people last week who told me in their organization that when a person of color vacates a job, they leave the company usually, that that job then gets upgraded to a higher level. And it, they said, salary and title go, oh, y'all know about that? Yeah, right, right, the salary and, and, and conversely, when a person of color goes into the job, it gets downgraded from director to manager, or you know what, what you know whatever it, it 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 might be. Time and time again. So this these are not just one-offs. I go from company to company to company to company, and I'm just hearing these same stories. How do we? That's part of colonization, I think, right? How do we? How do we? Um, how do we get under that? You know, how do we stop that? And there's always a story, there's always a reason. What I'm hearing in some of the organizations, that one person told me that she, she was told, when six months from now, when you come in this job, six months from now, you're gonna get a promotion. Two years have passed and she hasn't had it, and she was told, don't ask again. Don't ask again. So I wanna take it back to something you said, because I think we can get really practical about what reimagining looks like. Um, because I don't think it's any secret that even in our work, um, you know, we're, we're in, in some ways a microcosm of the world and systems that we are in. And so I don't think it is by happenstance that even in equity and inclusion work, white voices um, uh, are sometimes seen or interpreted with a certain degree of esteem or maybe even centered in a way that we do not experience um, or that is not afforded to black and brown voices. So much so, you know, in the spirit of uh, safe space and, and to model for you all, and this is perhaps not even new, we've heard people say, I would prefer to hear this from a white guy. I would prefer to hear this from, um, or this will be more palatable if it wasn't, you know, a bunch of black women coming through. There is certainly a role for allyship in this work. And the stories that I hear of your mother, Shavar, uh, affirm this for me. Um, so I think there is a both and approach. And so I wonder, from your perspectives in the context of like reimagining this work, what does it mean in how we continue to certainly center black and brown experiences, um, but then also get really practical about that and even how we realize what economic justice, like um, what this means and how we use our power as it relates to funding and budgets and how we partner. Um, I think that's part of this reimagining and I'd be interested in your perspectives around that. What's interesting, we um, recently had a client and when I went out to the client on the very last day, the client was taking me to the airport. 
and he said, I have a confession to make. I'd like to confess my unconscious bias. I said, okay. <laughs> As if it was a long drive. <laughs> we had about an hour and 30 minutes, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And he said, you know, when I first saw your photograph and your bio that was sent over by the Winters Group, I was worried. He thought I was Latina. My name, physically, what I look like, I recognize I am racially ambiguous to some. My bio, he said, felt a little radical. And he said, I was so worried, I wasn't sure how you were going to connect with all these white men. He said, but you all sent two white men and you, and you were the only person who connected with the white men. And he said, and I was stopped in my tracks, and he said, I had to really rethink what that means. I was curious in terms of his own experiences that led him to that, but I was most curious, and then what was he going to do next? And how was that going to inform the decisions he made about the practitioners that he brought in, right? And he was surprised by that question. I hadn't thought through that far, but I told him it was a, a wonderful first step, and I was deeply appreciative for the transparency, but the real work would lie in what he chose to do next and what allyship looked like in terms of him, one, how he experienced it, how he expressed it to his superiors, how he then made decisions. And I asked him if perhaps my bio and my photograph, it wasn't just about me, but was there more, was there a, a systemic issue and how had he been making decisions about other vendors and mm. other partners? And he then started thinking through, yes, that has been a barrier to how I have chosen work with people. So I think that is even a first step in us being comfortable enough. I wasn't really sure if I should ask him that question or not. I was worried. I mean, I, I was there on behalf of the Winters Group, not just as Shavara, right? And so there was something at stake. I thought it was worth the risk because one, he began the dialogue, and two, it was a fundamental question because it wasn't just about me. It was about a larger system that we're talking mm. about, right? And how do we, if we're talking about decolonizing the work, we are talking about the work in the context of system. Yeah, I really think that um, starting to, the, the practical, you're asking about the practical, right? So I think one of the practical ways as practitioners to have the, the courage to ask the questions of those decisions that are being made. And so over the years I've heard, yeah, you know, I really think that my leaders are gonna hear this better from, you know, from a white person. Um, and so we, we're, in the systems that we're in, oftentimes people will ask for the white male who's on our team. Can you send Travis, I'll just tell you, say his name. Can you send <laughs> Travis? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, we, we'd like Travis. So why would you like Travis? Well, because Travis is going to connect better with our, you know, white leaders. Well, you know, we've got to start asking that question. You know, if if we're going to decenter, you know, if if we're trying to move forward, um, perhaps you know, think about you know, m let's not send Travis. Let some let's send somebody who might be somewhat uncomfortable for the leaders because that's where we're trying to go. And wow, Shavara, you know. You really connected with the <laughs> with, with the white guys, right? You, you might be surprised, right? Right. And so I think that I think that um, what I find oftentimes with um, the chief diversity officers and the folks who are in the, the roles is that they are afraid to ask the questions or to even challenge a little bit. They come back and say, "Well, such and such said that they want this." And so that's what we're going to give them because that's what they said they want, right? Or on the other end, and you know, kudos to you because a lot of times what I see is that they start by apologizing. I'm not angry, but I need to ask this question. So that I'm not angry is that unconscious bias as, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm going to be perceived as the angry black woman and then I know that I'm not going to get anywhere. Right. So even if I, I, I ask a question, just, just inquiring, um, is interpreted as angry. Mm -hmm. Angry is anger because that's power. And anger is okay. 
Even well, if I am angry, it, it, and I dare not internalize like forms of oppression that would suggest my anger isn't valid. But, but not if like I'm in a colonized culture. Exactly. I was going to say, anger is okay. However, we have to get those in the power position to recognize that anger is okay and to begin to understand where that anger comes from and to challenge, right? And so what here, here's what happens, though. Ask the questions. There may be some anger. Your performance evaluation, you know, reflects it. Um, the next, uh, you know, you're looking for another opportunity. Oh, well, I don't know if Mary Frances is going to be right, you know, for that she's got, she's got a lot of passion, you know, and sometimes that passion, <laughs> she's so passionate, right? Sometimes that passion, you know, looks like anger. I mean, and so think about the, the, the risk because of the ignorance. And so I think um, from the issue of right, decolonizing, and we talked about it earlier today as well in the, in the uh, panel when, uh, with Mark talked about it, we just don't know the history. And it's so important to see the videos like the Fannie Lou Hamer mm -hmm. video. I dare say, if we were to propose this video in some of the systems that we're in, we wouldn't be called back. <laughs> right? And so, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this um, balance that we do about this readiness thing at, at, but at the same time, you know, um, pushing. And so what, what I say is that if we all began to push, you know, in mass, right? And so this is what's happening in all of the organizations. You know, a chief diversity office only lasts about two years. That, that's about life of, and either because they get burned out, fatigued, and they leave, or the organization, you know, ask them, you know, to, to leave, or maybe they don't ask them to leave, but it's like, kind of like, you know, somebody told me, yeah. somebody told me, you either take this manager job, you know, or we don't have anything for it, demotion, you either take this demotion, or we don't have anything else, you know, for you. So, you know, it's kind of being forced out. So I, I think what we have to be, have to begin to do, and so we have to begin to challenge that as well. So the person who told me about being forced out the other day, I said, did you sue their asses? You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, s the story that she told about this experience, I was like, good God, are we still having this crap happen in, in organizations? Right? And I'm s so I'm saying that, you know, I, I, how do we break the system? And I think we have to really step, and, you know, the consequence. So, you know, Mark Lamont um, Hill was fired, um, you know. And so when we're fired, though, we've got to be able to catch folks. We got to mm -hmm. be able to say, I've got a place to go when I get fired. Mm -hmm. now, we've got to have that community that's going to be able to catch folks and, and, and take them in, right? Yeah. So I think if that, real quick, Shavar, because something comes up for me, and I, I, I want to get y'all's thoughts on it. Because one of the things, perhaps, that we don't talk about is sort of the risk and consequence of, you know, this sounds all good, reimagining, right? But what are the, the risks and um, consequences associated with that? I think there's a certain degree of, um, from my perspective, uh, just privilege associated with um, being external to an organization and thereby accountability associated within this work versus being internal. I think that when we talk about allyship, there is risk that's influenced by one's identities. And so your whiteness, one's whiteness, obviously influences the extent to which. So I don't think that in this, if we, thought, if we think of ourselves as a, a, a social change ecosystem, Look up Deepa Ayer. I really enjoy her work around uh, realizing our work as a being part of the ecosystem um, where we all play a very specific role. Then I think we realize that risk isn't distributed equally, just like our experiences aren't the same. And so I do think there's opportunity, and that's what I heard from you, Mary Francis, for there to be some sort of, you know, coalition building. I don't know what that looks like, um, where consultants are taking on a role that holds organizations a bit more accountable um, in a way that they're sharing with risk with those internally. I think of a, a medium right now that's popular. What is this? The CEO Action Council, right? Mm -hmm. Many thoughts on that, of how that could even like play into this here conversation. Shavar, you're, you're like burning. I'm well, interested in what well you're about so to say, no, girl. What I was, what I was thinking, Mary Frances, <laughs> we were talking about <laughs> practitioners, right? But we were, when we talk about 
the decolonizing kind of the movements that we see, decolonizing museums, we hear that in the art space, decolonizing curriculum. And I think mm. that we need to be, you, were s you said in mass, and mm -hmm. it made me think about that too. I meet practitioners, and I've met practitioners in this space who have been using the same materials for the past 25 years. Mm. That does not move us further. We are having a different conversation. Our, so our socio-political climate is constantly changing and evolving. So in mass, if we are also forcing each other to have a different conversation through the materials mm. that we are using, through the books that we are suggesting, through the videos that we are using, it doesn't benefit us to be showing a video from 1982 which we see sometimes, right, with our colleagues. But if as a collective, not from the Winters Group, we have up-to-date current as of like last week. Um, <laughs> but if we are talking about really pushing the envelope on asking people, language has changed Hello. in the past 30 years. If we're talking yes. about reframing language, mm -hmm. if we're talking about the systems that we now have in place, and I'm talking about on, on every level throughout all sectors, that hasn't changed much for many organizations in the past 25 or 30 years when this sector began to emerge. And so part of this pushback, this decolonizing, this in mass, I really love that because if one organization is doing it, it's not going to have much impact. And what might happen mm. in the sector, oh, that organization is really radical. We're gonna go back to what's comfortable and safe mm. and feels good to us. But if all of us are doing it, there is no choice because we have all decided that it is a new day. There is a new dawn. Mm. And so I think that that's one way that we can support each other, be allies in this space, elevate the work, and force the organizations to co-create with us as we're, as we're moving forward. Um, thank you. It's fabulous to be here with you tonight. I, well, I adore you guys. Um, former chief diversity officer in different places. Mm. Um, and I actually, I want to share with you that I joined after trying for a little while to be a consultant. And I decided I don't like to be from outside. And I didn't want people to use my work in ways that I didn't have control or accountability. Mm. So I went back inside. Um, and I did it because I was tired of seeing children in cages and not seeing enough outrage mm -hmm. over this, and also because of the mental health space and the what's coming, the tidal wave of pain and suffering and mental health conditions that are coming af after this. So, And that's why I joined NAMI, and it's, um, it's a good space for me to begin this work. But um, two thoughts, different thoughts. One of them is that um, in terms of role as a chief diversity officer and practitioner, I just want to share that, yeah, some of us do ask the questions. As a public health practitioner, my approach has been to use the data to ask the questions or to state the obvious and then challenge what's happening. And that, yes, the consequences are real. And um, when you're there, I've experienced everything from, oh, when I say, well, over my dead body, we're going to do this dumb inter intervention that is really anti-everything. So over my dead body, and then it gets taken away from me, and part of my uh, time on my staff gets assigned to the learning and development people so they can do this not well-crafted intervention. So that's one of the things I have experienced when I have said no and challenged the system all the way to all the other sequelae things and consequences that do come and are real. And when you're inside challenging someone who's not supportive, it is that kind of painful and horrible, right? And so you have to take a stand and sometimes we do. And maybe be perhaps because of that experience, I'm gonna throw this at you. When we do the global diversity inclusion benchmarks, we talk about the five kind of approaches, right? Social justice, cultural competence, compliance, et cetera, et cetera. And because I came out of the public health field, for me, cultural competence was my space. And I did not expect that much from other systems because I know they weren't there. And there are times where I think like, okay, the ERG with their $5,000 budget is not the place to do the social justice movement changing because they are still easily co-opted by the system of power under which we work. So I don't expect that much of those systems. I fight within, but I do my social work, uh, my social justice work outside where mm -hmm. my voice is not co-opted. So what do you think about that? Am I becoming so cynical? Is it 25, 30 years of this that I'm becoming so cynical? And then my approach remains like heavily um, connected to cultural competence as a certain set of outcomes within some systems. 
but I'm not connecting it to the social justice because I don't expect that from the, some of my leaders. So what do you think about that? What about that? A so cynicism, a, a cope, uh, coping mechanism? <laughs> so I think cynicism is a very valid feeling, first of all, to like working in this work. Yesterday we talked about mapping the intersection and the assumptions that we make in this work is that um, we won't see gains if we're not centering equity, justice, and talking about power. And so, in a sense, um, we don't we don't believe that that work the work can get done outside, or if we're not um, uh, leveraging or centering a justice and equity lens, which is proven because outcomes pretty much stayed the same. I do think there is something to be said about sort of the interpersonal or intrapersonal impact of working internally. And I think self-care and boundaries are real. And so even when I was working internally, I remember saying that, you know what, the sphere of influence in this system right now is looking kind of bleak. And so I'm going to leverage sort of my community and for purposes of my self-care, um, uh, activate my gifts and skill sets sort of elsewhere specifically my you know, black community um, to do the work. I think that's an element and a real, I think that's a real version, like a practical form of self-care. And so I don't wanna necessarily make it seem like we're undermining the very real, especially as a, as a woman of color in that space, like undermining like the fatigue that you also experience um, and also challenge us to reimagine ways we can continue to hone ourselves. I think um, I love, somebody brought up language, and I'm just gonna offer this as like a very practical like takeaway, because no lie y'all, a couple weeks ago I was on the, the council's website, seal uh, council's website, and I was just doing like a control find of just different terms that I think are relevant to this work, including equity, including racism, including justice, at this point including like whiteness and white supremacy, and I couldn't find those terms anywhere. And I was low key like bothered by that. Like I had a feeling about that because I was a little concerned that that's a very practical medium where we have leaders and people with legit power and influence and we're not even comfortable naming things. And so no, not everything is unconscious bias. Some of it's internalized oppression. Some of it is white supremacy. Some of it's like, you know, these, are, these are what these things, some of it's racism. And I don't know if we get to a point of solutions if we can't even call it out or don't even know what they are. And so like very practically for me, reimagining looks like getting back to just understanding this work and sharpening our toolkits as practitioners so that when we hear people use words or conflate terms, we can be like, nah, see what you're really experiencing is, you know, being part of um, a dominant group and a subordinated group because you know we're intersectional and so we can experience power and be also oppressed at the same time. And so this is, this is like a thing that's happening. It's not just unconscious bias, right? So I think we do a disservice when we assume that, um, or even make assumptions about what people are ready for. I'm gonna offer something, this came from um, one of our team members, Dharma, just went through the uh, IDI certification process and she brought back to the team, just some stuff that had me thinking about how we even conceive. Everybody knows what IDI is. Intercultural Development Inventory for the folks who are gonna listen and not know IDI. A tool that we use to, or have used traditionally to say, hey, I wonder what people are ready for in their content. I think we've conflated that with whether or not, um, so, so sort of readiness and assume that, oh, if you're here, you dare not or, or won't understand racism. Or if you're here, you won't understand isms. And she brought back to the group, um, oh, and I hope I do service to how I explain this, that the tool certainly gauges readiness in interacting across differences but it's not meant to understand people's sort of level of competency of concepts and theories and skills. That's our role as facilitators to figure out how to help you understand like power is a thing, maybe without initially calling out privilege, right? That's our, 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 that's our, our job as facilitators and our practitioners, but just because you're at a certain place in your understanding of difference doesn't mean you're not ready to understand that you have power and can use it. I just got like a time thing um, and so as rich as this dialogue is, time is certainly um, not just a construct, like we actually have <laughs> definitive <laughs> time. So I'm gonna do a wrap up. If y'all had to just um, uh, leave the group with one thing they can do to take back, the group and then the people who are gonna listen to this, take back into their worlds, what can you do to hold 
yourself accountable. And I want to I want to say as practitioner, because I really don't want to perpetuate this whole like go back and tell folks at your organization thing, because it's crazy. I was about to say, crazy amount of sessions where we gonna get that tomorrow, um, rest of the conference. But what can I do as a practitioner to reimagine my role, this industry, and continue to sharpen my toolkit? I'm gonna let y'all choose because I don't want to be responsible for putting y'all on the spot. So y'all go for it. Is that book out? Yeah. <laughs> Which book? Black oh, oh, I have two books coming out, that's what I'm saying. So Black Fatigue comes out um, in January now, and the other book is Inclusive Conversations, Fostering Equ Equity, Empathy, and Belonging Across Difference. And in that uh, book, I, um, I, I want to leave you, you with this, this, this idea. When we're having the conversations, we have to think about equitable conversations from the very beginning. Because when you sit down to try to have a conversation, they're not always equitable. So developing, this is practical, so developing language, la developing language to go into conversations and look at how we make these conversations equitable. One way might be we're gonna give more voice to those who have been historically marginalized in this conversation so that we can create equity because we didn't start at the same place. So that's, that's what I would like to, to, to leave with. I'd like to leave us with how we began with Fannie Lou Hamer and going back to the haggardness in her face and the weariness in her eyes and the tremble in her voice and how we as practitioners need to hold better space for ourselves for self-care and voice that and if we need time away, if we need support, being able to find voice within our organizations whether that's internal or external to say, and, and I don't know, internally, because people are, are so prone to want the data, it might be, let me share with you the latest reports on the impact of cumulative microaggression on the black body. You know, maybe it's a PowerPoint with that and to say, and this here is my black body, and this is what's going on in my cells, right? Um, but on a more practical level, just holding that space for, for ourselves. I, I live in South Florida and I go to the ocean for sunrise with crystals and lavender and sage. I've got sage and incense in my hotel room. Don't tell anybody. I know we're not supposed to be lighting up stuff and burning it there, but. Um, oh, they know I now. They know now. <laughs> um, it matters to me that I am holding space for myself. Today in a session, I was triggered as an attendee by something that happened from someone who was not a person of, of color and it almost left me in tears and I had to kind of step back and, and reassess. I wasn't there as a practitioner because had I been there as a practitioner, I would have known exactly what to do. I was there as an attendee and as my black Shavara self and found it challenging to work through. So, so I leave you with, with self-care. My, um, my uh, uh, takeaway from today, a lot of it has to do with me sitting in between y'all and this video, um, trust black women, trust black women, listen to black women. It sounds intuitive, but y'all ain't gonna be the only one that hears this. And so I'm just gonna affirm that, um, that that is so practical, whether it's in your interaction with the coworker, whether it's in the narratives that you consume, whether it's how you use your funding um, and engage with external communities that's something that's extremely practical and top of mind for me. In addition um, to, as practitioners and people who hold intersectional identities, getting in touch with your power as well, um, whatever that looks like. Doing that self-work, that intrapersonal work to understand how you show up, how others experience you, and the ways in which your very presence um, can influence and shift the system sometimes even unbeknownst, uh, unbeknownst to you. That's can, I the word. can I just say one last thing about the power? Um, we use this term empower. I want us to take that out of our vocabulary because empower suggests somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna give it to you. Turn that E-M around to M-E. Take that power. Mm -hmm.